All right, beloved, let's, uh, let's get started in our series, Incomparable. We are in Matthew chapter 11 today. So a quick prayer. Father in heaven, bless us as we turn our attention to Scripture. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say amen. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 11. And uh, before we do that, I'll turn my thing on here. Right before we get in, I want to give you a promotion of something that I'm extremely enthusiastic about. You can dim the lights if you need to, guys. That projector's got to go, Nate. We've got to work on that. Uh, this is a really, really cool thing that's just happened this week. A bunch of friends of mine have put out an album that is an album of both narration and music that walks through the book of Daniel. And uh, I've been listening to it on repeat since I purchased it earlier this week. I know that there's some others in here who are already in the know. And uh, I recommend this without reservation. It's called The King Dreams. And some people that you would know, uh, Joshua and Jackie Cunningham are on there. Billy Otto is on there. A number of friends of mine. Uh, It is literally outstanding. And I think they perfectly captured the feel of the shape of the book of Daniel. And so after Sabbath, I want to encourage you, go to iTunes or to Spotify or whatever your music supplier is and, and purchase the King Dreams, not only for your own benefit and blessing, which you will receive, but for the support of Adventist artists and Christian artists who are trying to do something to use their talents and their skills and their energies to bring the Bible to the world. And it is absolutely awesome. Now, last week, I could not come up with a particularly good or catchy uh, title. Uh, It was just simply No Fear, which is pretty boring. But this week, I came up with two, and I couldn't decide what to name the sermon. So you can take whichever title you like. The first title is When the Script Flips, and the second one is Go Ahead and Dance. So either of those would be similarly, would you like that one better? Go Ahead and Dance? Yeah, okay, that was was the vote in my house as well. Uh, We're going to talk about Matthew chapter 11. It's going to be really awesome. Where are we at in the shape of Matthew's gospel? Well, we are in the uh, fourth chapter under the the section of leader. We're in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be in 12 next week, and those three chapters, 10, 11, and 12, will form our fourth of seven chapters. Here we're taking a look at Jesus as leader. And we noticed in last uh, week, last Sabbath, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends the disciples out. He says, go out, go out, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Now, Jono, I don't know why that just happened, but it just all of a sudden skipped to the middle of my presentation. So if you could bring me back to the beginning, that'd be great. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11 and begin reading right in verse 1. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Several things just about the the first verse. Jesus in chapter 10 had told his disciples, Go out there, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Chapter 11 picks up very same narrative flow, and Matthew says, after he had finished telling them to go out into the various cities and to not be afraid, it says that Jesus himself departed and began to teach and preach. That's a fascinating distinction, to teach and preach, and I want to put up here on the screen, the kingdom of heaven is furthered by both proclamation, that's preaching, and by instruction, that's one-on-one instruction, that's teaching, but especially by demonstration. The gospel is not just to be proclaimed. The gospel is not just to be taught doctrinally. The gospel is to be lived and believed and exhibited and demonstrated. And we're going to see that today. Now, we get to uh, verse 2 of chapter 11, and we find two words that seem distinctly out of place. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. 
And when John had heard, in prison. Those are the two words that seem to not belong. When John had heard, where was he when he heard this, everyone? When John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and he said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? In the, the Greek here, the, the verse 3 could actually be rendered even stronger. Or do we look for another kind of coming one? Are you the one or, or do we look for another kind of Messiah? What is John doing in prison? Faith is not the same as absolute certainty. And, and this, I know, almost goes without saying. But there are many of us that, that think that we have to be totally certain about everything that happens in every circumstance, in every situation. And if we don't, that we are somehow liable to doubt and liable to not be everything that we could and should be in Christ. John the Baptist is clearly experiencing a situation here where he's doubting. This is the very same John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the very same John the Baptist who, when Jesus came into the waters, said, uh, I have need to be baptized by you. This is the very same John the Baptist who said, Oh, no, 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 I'm just baptizing you with water, but the one that comes after me will baptize with fire. Right? The certainty and the assuredness with which he spoke early on is now disappearing to some degree. And he sends a message out to Jesus are you the coming one or did we get it wrong? Did I make a mistake? Should we look for another one? Should we look for another kind of Messiah? John the Baptist could not make sense out of the fact that Jesus was Messiah, that Jesus was his elder cousin, and that he was in prison. Why is he in prison? John the Baptist had faith. His faith was in God. His faith was even in Jesus as Messiah, even though right here at this moment his faith is wavering somewhat. He does not have absolute certainty. And a significant amount of spiritual damage can be done to people when they mistake absolute certainty for faith and faith for absolute certainty. Faith is prone to doubt. Absolute certainty is not. You might be troubled at times by your own doubts, by your own misgivings, by your own struggles with the faith. I want to let you know, giants of the faith in both the Old and the New Testaments wrestled with why this was happening to them. Why me? Why here? Why this? Why now? Why? And so John the Baptist sends two of his disciples. He is incredulous. He cannot understand why, if Jesus is who John surely thought he was, he remains, two words, in prison. Faith is not the same as absolute certainty. And faith, unlike absolute certainty, is tested and stretched when our version of the script of our lives does not match reality. When, when what's happening is not what's supposed to be happening. When what's occurring to us or around us or to our loved ones is not what we envisioned. Just in the last week, I have been in the homes of a number of people whose lives did not go according to script. A beautiful family who lost a 23-year-old son to Hodgkin's lymphoma. That did not go according to the script. A beautiful wedding and a daughter-in-law and grandchildren. That's the script. The script is not my beautiful 23-year-old son dying. Last night I received a text. Another member of this church, she might have to have her foot amputated. Look at your foot right now. Look at your right foot. I can guarantee you that it is no part of your script in your life that your right foot will at any time be detached from your body. 
That's not a part of your script. So what happens when the doctor tells you that there's a 50% chance you're going to lose your right foot? I just recently returned, as you know, from the United States and Canada. And when I arrived in the airport in, in British Columbia, I received a text from one of my friends. David, I will not be able to be with you at camp meeting. Why not? Because my wife has left me. She has had an affair and the children and I are alone. This was not a part of his script. After 10 years of marriage and two beautiful children, it wasn't a part of the plan. It wasn't supposed to happen like this. So what happens when the things that happen to us and around us and to our loved ones are radically different from not only what we want, but what we are just sure God wants? Now, let me sort of orient you to something here that might not be particularly provocative, and then let me try and orient you to something that is quite provocative. Let's start with this one. First of all, I think it's safe to say, and tell me if you agree, that John did not want to be in prison. We comfortable with that? Right? I mean, who, who would? Right? Who would want to be involuntarily in prison? It's one thing to go visit a prison. It's one thing to be there as a volunteer or as a missionary. But I think it's, we're well within safe ground to say John did not want to be in prison. And this is evinced by the fact that he sends two of his disciples to go to Jesus and say, hey, what gives? Really, what's going on? Because if you are who I think you are, and if I am who I think I am, why am I in prison? And so we can say, I think, with absolute certainty that John did not want to be in prison. But how about this one? This might be a little provocative for some of you. I would like to strongly suggest that Jesus did not want John in prison. It wasn't a part of Jesus' script for John to be in prison, and it wasn't a part of John's script for John to be in prison, which raises the question, why is John in prison? Why is he rotting in the prison cell of Herod when he should be out doing what he was good at? Now, remember who John is. John is John the Baptist, the one who wore camel's hair, who ate locusts and wild honey, who roamed far and wide through the wilderness. He was not someone that wanted to be constrained or confined or certainly stuck in some damp prison. He wants to be out in the vast open spaces of the Galilean wilderness. John, that John, is stuck in a place he does not want to be. I would like to suggest that Jesus didn't want him there anyway, which raises the question, do things happen to us and around us and to our loved ones that are not a part of God's script? Or is everything that happens to us, whether for good or bad, somehow, mysteriously, in some puzzled way, fitting into God's great big plan and blueprint? I would like to suggest the answer is emphatically no. From Benjamin L. Corey, an article I read just this week, he writes this, one of the deepest and most primitive human needs, and I am so deeply resonant with this, one of the deepest and most primitive human needs is that of a narrative, a storyline of which your life is a part, right? A narrative, it, it's from somewhere and it is somewhere and it's going somewhere. And I, I think that, that uh, Corey is onto it here when he says that this is not just a desire, it's not just a Hollywood scriptwriter's desire to create a cogent and, and meaningful and compelling narrative. Every one of us at the heart of our being, and not just everyone in this room, but everyone in the world imagines that their life possesses meaning, that there is some significance to their life, that you're not just a blip, you're not just a dot, you're not just a mistake in the vast cold universe, that there's a story going on here and you have a role to play. 
Now, there are people in our culture and in our age who imagine that they are at the center of the story, right? Movie stars and famous people and others, and then we treat them like they're at the center of the story. Barring that sort of narcissism, every one of us in this room feels at some level that there's a story going on, there's a narrative going on, and we're a part of it. We want our life to have meaning, to have significance. And, and as a part of that narrative, look at what Corey goes on to say. We need narratives to help us understand and make meaning of our own stories. It is understandable that we would want to adopt a narrative that says everything in your life is intended for good and every bad thing that ever happened to you was planned for your own good. However, Corey says, I don't think that narrative is a biblical narrative. I never had the privilege of meeting my biological father. He was young, 18 years young, my mother was young, and he left. I contacted him at the age of 25 after converting to Christ and asked him if I could meet him. I just wanted to tell him that I forgave him and that I understood. Could we just have lunch together? He was too busy. I have reached out to and tried to connect with my biological father, and that didn't happen. I I wish that the script went differently. I wish that the script went very differently, but that's the hand I've been dealt Some of you have been dealt other hands. There are people who would love to be in church today who cannot be here because of physical difficulties. And I'm not talking about people in their 70s and 80s. I'm talking about people in their mid-20s who cannot physically be here, either emotionally or physically. That was not a part of their plan. It was not a part of their script. And what Corey is saying here is that we, we want, it's very understandable for us to want some overarching narrative in which we can say all the bad stuff that happened to us, whether it was a car accident on a remote road in Australia or the absence of a father figure or the removal, the amputation of one of your feet or your, your wife uh, deciding she wants to be with another man or your husband deciding he wants to be with another woman. It's, it's sort of placating and, and appeasing to us to imagine that God is superintending all of it and that at the end of the day, all things work together for good. And oh, we quote that scripture, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that all things, I've got it here on the screen for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know us, we know this verse, many of us by heart. And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and to those that are called according to his purpose. How many of us in this room, by the raising of hand, have quoted this verse in a time of difficulty or adversity, either to yourself or to somebody else? Raise your hand if you've quoted this verse. Of course you have. Of course you have. This is the safety net of Christianity. This is the verse to which we flee when the cancer test comes back positive. This is the verse to which we flee when your child is killed by a drunk driver. This is the verse to which we flee when life unleashes its unfairness and its cruelty and its terrors. All things work together for good. And it almost gives the impression, I believe incorrectly, that all of that stuff out there that's happening, all that bad stuff, all that terrible stuff, all that cruel stuff, somehow, in some mystifying way, fits into God's grand puzzle and blueprint. I like the way the RSV translates it because it shows not that things work together for good, but that God works together for good. Watch the difference here. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 in the NKJV. Look at it now in the RSV. We know that in everything, God works for good. Can the church say amen? We know that in everything, even the bad stuff, even the terrible stuff, even the cruel stuff, God works for good. And literally, the word there, works, is works together. Works with us, alongside us, in a kind of partnership, in a, in a connection between he and us. God works for good with those, notice, with those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. 
This is a very different picture now. Now it's not that God is superintending all the negative and terrible things that happen to us, like getting thrown in prison. And incidentally, this is just the first part of the John the Baptist story. The first part of the John the Baptist story has him in prison, right? This actually happened back in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus heard that John was in prison. Here in chapter 11, uh, John is in prison and sends disciples out to Jesus to inquire, why am I still in prison? And when we get to Matthew chapter 14, John is going to be killed. Quite apart from his script, I assure you. And quite apart from Jesus' script, I would like to suggest. Notice what Corey goes on to say in this article I read this week. The difference between how we approach this verse, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. Is it the things that are working together for good? Or is it God that's working with us through the things? Corey says, the difference between how we approach this verse and how we handle this issue of God's role in our suffering has huge consequences for Christian living. And that is an understatement. If God causes all suffering for some higher good that we just can't now understand... Our role becomes sitting back, watching all the predetermined events unfold, and hoping we can eventually get a glimpse of what God was trying to do. However, when we reject the idea, which I do, and I'm asking you to do the same on biblical grounds, when we reject the idea that God is the causing agent behind our car accidents, our illnesses, or the loss of our children, but instead... He is a God who specializes in taking horrible events and bringing goodness and beauty out of them. When we agree to partner alongside with him, we experience not a call to complacency and fear, but of partnership and hope. Corey then asks this question. I got a question for you, he says. What's more comforting? Number one, or he says, what's more comforting? What seems more consistent with the revelation of of God that we see in Jesus Christ? Number one, is it that God causes our suffering for some mysterious reason or even allows it for some mysterious reason? Or is it that God is constantly working with whatever horrible variables we may face to somehow, some way bring about good things for us? What's more comforting? That God superintends, allows, or even in some cases, heaven forbid, causes these things to happen? Does God want John in prison? Is God working through Herod and, and, and through the schemings of, of Herod to bring out his best will? I think not. When we find Jesus in the New Testament encountering illness in virtually every case, and I am aware there is at least one exception, that's why I say virtually every case, Jesus does not confront illness as something that's playing a big part in God's beautiful, perfect plan. He confronts illness as the enemy. He rebukes illness. On one occasion in Luke chapter 13, he actually says, Satan bound this woman and placed her in this infirmed condition. Jesus does not encounter illness or sickness or death or cruelty as somehow mysteriously fitting into God's big, beautiful plan. He says, no. Death is an enemy. Sickness is an enemy. Cruelty is an enemy. All of these things is not God working, but God working with us to navigate, I love the way he says this, these horrible variables that we may face. Horrible variables like two of my best friends in the world being killed by a drunk driver when I was a senior in high school. That's a horrible variable that God played no part in. The cancer test coming back positive is a horrible variable. 
Your 23-year-old boy dying of Hodgkin's lymphoma is a horrible variable. A variable that eventuates when you create an unfathomably complex world with infinite, seemingly infinite number of decisions being made by billions of agents that make all of this complex web of reality something that not only you and I are navigating, but God is navigating with us, alongside us, and for us. Very different picture here. I'll say it this way. It's not God that's confusing and mysterious. It's life that is confusing and mysterious. God is good, always hoping the very best for every person in every circumstance. What is John the Baptist doing in prison? Jesus' response to the inquiring disciples of John begins in verse 4. Jesus answered and said to the disciples, He was sympathetic to John's struggle. I'm suggesting here it was Jesus' own struggle. He would have loved to have been able to have snapped his fingers within the parameters of the great controversy and released John the Baptist from prison. But given the parameters of the great controversy and given the fact that people have genuine free will, Jesus knew he was up against an obstacle and a horrible variable that he could not easily alter. And so he sends a message of encouragement, of comfort, and even of mild rebuke back to John. Verse 4, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. They would have spent a few days with Jesus. They would have seen some of these things. What did they see? Verse 5, Jesus tells us, The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And here's the little mild rebuke in verse 6, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When John had said, I baptize you with water, but somebody's coming after that will baptize with fire. John has in mind what probably most first century Jews had in mind, that Elijah would come first. Well, we know the story of Elijah. Elijah is a God who, atop Carmel's lofty summit, consumes, that the fire is consumed, and who then slays all of the enemies of God. John is having trouble processing, if, if I am the forerunner, and you are Messiah, and I'm baptizing with water, and you're going to come, and I'm going to perform some Elijah-like manifestation of you and your power and your presence, why am I in a pagan prison? Aren't I supposed to be putting the pagans into prison? Aren't I supposed to be? Aren't you supposed to be? Even John the Baptist, like the disciples of Jesus, do not, he does not understand the nature of the kingdom that Jesus has come to announce. So Jesus says, okay, spend a few days with me. See what you see. The blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and and the dead are raised and the poor are having the gospel preached to them. Spend a few days with me here and, and see the kingdom of God advancing and then go tell John and tell him he'll be happy if he doesn't find offense in the kind of Messiah I am. I know I'm not fitting into the cookie cutter mold of first century Judaism expectation, but go Tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. Verse 7, and as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? And he asks this three times. As the people went away, I, I get the sense here that Jesus did not want the disciples of John to hear John to hear Jesus speak in this beautiful, effusive, positive language about John because it might not have been good for John's 
uh, ego, it might not have been good for John to have heard the things that Jesus is about to say. So he waits for them to leave, and then Jesus puts a question to the multitude. And the question is a question he asks three times with slight variations. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Let me translate that. What really did you expect? No, 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 really. When you heard that there was a prophet, that there was a preacher, and that all Judea and all of Galilee was going out to hear this guy preaching, what did you expect? This chapter is all about expectations. John does not expect to be in prison. He does not expect Jesus to act in this way. The people did not expect John to behave in the way that he behaved. Jesus expected the cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, we're going to get to in just a second, to have repented. There's this chapter filled with expectations and in some cases dashed expectations. And so Jesus says, hey, I got a question for you. When you went out into the wilderness, what were you looking for? What is it that you thought you would see when you went out to hear the popular prophet? The guy who eats locusts and honey and and who wears the garment of camel's hair, who, who certainly is presenting himself as an Old Testament prophet. Remember, there's some 400 years between Malachi and John the Baptist. This is, he's a Renaissance man if there ever was one. When you went out to see the John the Baptist show, what did you expect? A reed shaken by the wind? There is some evidence that on the very coins of ancient Galilee that the symbol for Herod was a Galilean reed did you go out to see? A Herod-like figure? Did you go out to see a man who could be moved this way and that way, whose vacillating character moved as the politicians move? What did you go out to see? Verse 8, he asks it again. What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Did you go out to see a wealthy man? Maybe a false prophet who dwells in the house of Herod, who tells Herod all the things that he wants to hear? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. The third and final time, verse 9. What did you go out to see? Ah, you went to see a prophet. And here's where Jesus gives probably the strongest affirmation of any person that I'm aware of in the Gospels. He says, yes, and more than a prophet. For this this is he of whom it is written. He then quotes from Malachi, which is fascinating because John the Baptist was in the Old Testament trajectory of prophetic identity and of prophetic shtick. He presents himself as the, as the, the, the voice of reason, the voice calling in the wilderness, the voice of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus is like, what did you go to see? Did you go to see a prophet? Indeed he was. And then he says, this is the one of whom it is spoken. He then quotes in Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. Now, if you have your Bibles in front of you, which I surely hope you do, I'm going to go back just one book, which takes me to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. And I'm going to read the first few verses of chapter 3, this very prophecy that Jesus here references when speaking of John and his ministry. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Here it is. Behold, I send my messenger, lowercase m. My Bible, lowercase m. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, uppercase m. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even, and this is one of my favorite titles for Jesus in the Old Testament, even the messenger of the covenant, uppercase m. 
a lowercase messenger will announce the coming of the uppercase messenger of the covenant. In whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who can endure the day of his coming? And in a, in a, I don't know if Malachi didn't understand or if he purposefully mingles the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. My, my suspicion is, is that Malachi himself was unclear on it, and he wrote what he saw in vision. He combines the coming of Jesus as a babe in Bethlehem's manger, as a messenger of the covenant, with his return in glory at the end of the great controversy. He combines them. Verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? That sounds like second coming. Who can stand when he appears? That sounds like second coming. He is like a refiner's fire and a, full, a launderer's soap. That's all second coming. He will, and as a, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer the offering to the Lord, an offering of righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days, as in former years. And I will come near for you in judgment. And this is the part I really want to focus on here. I will be a swift witness, he says, against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers. And I love this. I will be a swift witness against those who exploit the common laborer, the widows, the orphans, and the aliens. Right up to this place in Matthew, we have seen Jesus consistently and intentionally endearing himself and spending two and spending his time with people who were on the fringes of Jewish society. We've already talked about this. A leper, a Roman centurion, a bleeding woman, a tax collector. These were the common folk. And Jesus has been fraternizing and spending time with them. And I love this here in Malachi. What Malachi is saying, when, when I return, I will have swift judgment against those who have alienated and ostracized those who are nearest and dearest to me, the poor, the outcast, the foreigner. And so it is not with, without consequence or significance that Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is presented again and again as fraternizing and, and spending time with and associating in the most positive way with outcasts. Jesus says, what did you expect? What did you expect when you went out? God has always been for the outcast and the foreigner. Always. His heart is with the poor. One of the great sayings, I was trying to find who it's attributed to, but it's attributed to like a dozen people. God is with the poor, and when we are with them, we are with him. God has always been with the outcast. He's always been with the outsider. He's always been with the alienated. He's always been with the disenfranchised. God has always been for the outcast and the foreigner. And we are all needy and desperate outcasts. That's the story. That's the story here. When Jesus shows up, this really fascinating flipping of the script begins to take place. Not only is the script flipped in, in many instances that are outside of God's control or not his control, but outside of, of, of God's ability to manage situations in the way that he would prefer to do if he could, such as John the Baptist being in prison. But there are senses in which God himself flips the script. And I like to say it this way. With God in an unexpected flip of the script, the out crowd is now the in crowd, and the in crowd is now the out crowd. And you see this again and again in the Gospel of Matthew. For example, in Matthew chapter 19, after Jesus just had the audacity to say 
to a rich, young ruler. Let me paint the picture for you. A healthy, wealthy Jew. A healthy, wealthy Jew. He's Jewish. He's already in. He's healthy. He's doubly in. He's a wealthy, healthy Jew. He's triply in. Jesus had the temerity to say, it's hard for a rich man to be saved. The disciples, of course, were perfectly beside themselves. They were incredulous. Who could be saved then? If a healthy, wealthy Jew cannot enter into the kingdom, then who could? And Jesus' response is, the first will be last and the last will be first. The in crowd is the out crowd and the out crowd is now the in crowd. Jesus then tells a story in Matthew chapter 20, picking up from that very interaction with the rich young ruler, and he says it again. So the last will be first and the first last. In this reversal of the first century expectation of what a Messiah would be and what he would do, Jesus is spending time with all the wrong people, and he's not endearing himself to the right people. John the Baptist is even confused by Jesus' behavior. Are you the guy, or do we look for another kind of Messiah? And Jesus just dutifully, calmly, but intentionally goes about the business of being the Messiah, of healing and of ministering and of spending time with. That is the business of Jesus. I tell you, when you think about the ministry of Jesus and the misunderstanding of who and what he was. For me, 1 Peter 1 comes forcibly to mind. Peter says this about the Old Testament prophets. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Man, those Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they really wanted to know everything that they were talking about. They were inquiring what person or, or time the Spirit of Christ in them indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. That, that they themselves did not fully grasp and understand the things that they were writing. And Peter says they were ministering to you even more than themselves. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven which thing the angels desire to look into. And I purposely underlined that word desire because it's going to become very important for us here in a few minutes. The angels long to look into these things. The Old Testament prophets wrote, but they didn't fully understand. John the Baptist, in the lineage of the Old Testament prophets himself, does not understand. John the Baptist is similarly confused. If you are who, you, who I think you are, and if I am who I think I am, why am I in prison? And how many of us have asked a similar question? I've given my heart to Jesus. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I have eaten healthy. I have lived well. I raised my children the right way, right way. Why is this happening to me? This is not according to my script. And I want to tell you, there's a very, 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 very good chance that those things that have happened to you that you seriously question were not a part of God's script either. But he is working with the horrible variables that have been at play in your life to bring about the best possible outcome. Craig S. Keener in his book, A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, one of the best conservative commentaries on the Gospel of Matthew writes, many people thought that the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, would come by violent revolution against the Gentile nations, a view that Jesus clearly rejected. Now this is fascinating. Go back to Matthew. And here we encounter... One of the weirdest things that Jesus says in the entire Gospel of Matthew, one of the weirdest things that he says, verse 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those that are born of women, that is to say, among human beings, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, 
But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In what sense would the disciples be greater than John the Baptist in this sense? John the Baptist was, according to Jesus, in the very lineage of the Old Testament prophets. He looked like an Old Testament prophet. He talked like an Old Testament prophet. He carried himself like an Old Testament prophet. And Jesus says, among those that are born of women, nobody's greater than John the Baptist. But you, disciples, you see now the fulfillment of what Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah anticipated. What they hoped for, what they longed for, what they desired, you're living in. You're living in right now. So, so all, of that, all of that preaching up until the time of John, of John the Baptist, there's a shift, there's a change. Now that I am actually here, the anticipation has met the actual, and the shadow has met the substance. And the thing that was hoped for has now arrived. And so he says, from this day forward, you will be proclaiming on a whole other level, a level of access, a level of touching and tasting and feeling and seeing the kingdom. And then he says, verse 12, one of the weirdest things in the whole book of Matthew. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. What does that mean? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent... Violent are taking it by force. They are forcibly entering it. There are a number of interpretive possibilities here. I won't go over all of them. Some think that maybe John the Baptist being in prison is itself an indication that the the kingdom of heaven, John's proclamation of the kingdom of heaven, he was the one that said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that 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 is what's meant here. Herod has done violence and he's going to eventually kill him. I don't think so. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's flipping the script again. Jesus knew that the general expectation was an expectation of violence. We're going to start lopping the heads off the Romans. We're going to subdue the Gentile nations. And Israel will be exalted in a national and physical sense over and above all the other nations and will become the rightful heirs of the world. They anticipate violence. And Jesus is like, yeah, there is going to be violence. But not the kind of violence that you expected. This is a violence of spiritual energy. This is a violence of of earnestness. This is a violence of taking the kingdom of heaven by force. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 16, verse 16, where he gives his, uh, the parallel statement to what happens here in Matthew chapter 11, Luke says, Luke puts these words in the mouth of Jesus. He says, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and everyone is pressing into it. They're taking it forcibly. And you know what's cool? This is exactly what we see in the Gospels. Everybody is drawing near to Jesus. Because here is a man who is beautiful. He is approachable. He is awesome. He is inviting. He is wooing. He's not like the standoffish and aloof religious leaders of his day. This guy was somebody you wanted to hang out with. If Jesus was here today, you would be drawn to him. You would be attracted to him. And all of the out crowd was now becoming the in crowd because they were being drawn to Jesus. And the in crowd, the religious crowd, was increasingly alienated from Jesus. And it's fascinating. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is suffering. People are pressing into the kingdom of heaven. And this is exactly what we see. In many literal instances, the crowds were so great pressing around Jesus that he had to escape. There were just too many people that wanted access to him. On another occasion, he said, hey, push the boat out from the land. People were so crowding him. They were so pressing upon him. He was so attractive, so inviting, so wooing, so beautiful, 
so endearing that he said, hey, push the boat out from land. I'll stay out here, and I will now address the crowds. Literally, people were pressing not only into the physical presence of Jesus. In so doing, they were pressing into the kingdom. And so Jesus flips the script on this idea of of violence, and he says, yes, there is a violence. There is a forcible entry that's taking place, but it's not the violence of swords. It's the violence of spiritual earnestness. There are three insights from one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Ellen White, and I want to just read these to you. She concurs exactly with this expectation, or explanation, I should say, I concur with her. In an article titled, The Violent Take It by Force, she quotes the verse, from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force, and then she says, the preaching of John the Baptist created intense excitement. Oh, there was an energy, there was an electricity about his preaching. At the beginning of his ministry, superstition, tradition, and fables had confused the minds of the people, and the right way was not understood. Zealous in securing worldly treasure and honor, men had forgotten God. John went forth to herald the Lord's anointed, Jesus. The teaching of John aroused in the hearts of many a great desire. That's what the angels had, a desire to have a part in the blessings that Christ was to bring, and they received the truth. The work of John the Baptist represents the work for these times. This is where it gets really exciting. His work and the work of those who go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah to arouse the people from their apathy are the same in many respects. People were pressing into John's message, and when Jesus showed up, he was so amazingly attractive and endearing and accessible. He wasn't the aloof disconnected, holier-than-thou, self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisee, Jesus, as we're going to see, Jesus' primary accusation by the religionists of his day is that he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. A second one here from, from Ellen White. She says, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. The violence here meant is a holy earnestness, such as Jacob manifested when he said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. This is a violence not of sword and of axe and of weapon. This is a violence of holy earnestness, pressing into the presence of Jesus as God draws and invites and woos And then a final one here. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. She says, what an encouragement to every soul. There are a number of interpretive possibilities for this complicated verse. But to me, the one that seems the most persuasive is that Jesus is saying people are forcing their way into the kingdom of heaven by their insistence. Think of the woman who just two chapters before in Matthew chapter 9, who is bleeding. She is ceremonially unclean. She is weakened by the blood loss. And yet she climbs. She clamors. She struggles. She fights through the crowd just to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. She's taking the kingdom of heaven by force, by violence. She is pressing herself. I've got some more here that are coming up in just a second. The religionists damning, and let's look at this. We're still in Matthew chapter 11. Verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. It's interesting that he says, if you are willing to receive it. If you're not willing to receive it, he's not Elijah. That's the way faith works. If you're willing to receive it, he's Elijah. If you're not willing to receive it, he's not Elijah. That's the way faith works. 
Verse 14, and if you are willing, uh, verse 15, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's also the way that faith works. Then Jesus gives a fascinating little story. He says, what shall I liken this generation to? What do you guys like? He said, well, you're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their friends. And they say, hey, look, we played the flute for you. But you wouldn't dance. And then we sang a dirge for you, but you wouldn't cry either. You were unmoved either by celebration and joy or by strong voice of, 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 of woe and sadness. And Jesus then says, for John came neither eating or drinking. He was, lived an austere and, and an ascetic lifestyle. And you said, oh, he's a demon. He's a bit mad in the head, that guy. But overly religious. He says, but the son of man comes, verse 19. And you say, oh, look at this guy. This guy's a glutton and a wine-bibber. He is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The religionist's damning indictment of Jesus, that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, is in fact the greatest good news, that God is a friend of sinners. Friends, I got a question for you. Are you pressing into the kingdom of heaven? Are you pressing into the kingdom? Or are you living leisurely and quite complacently within the confines of what might be called cultural Christianity or cultural Adventism? Are you pressing into the presence of God? Jesus lived in a time where there were people that were pressing upon him so vigorously, so profoundly, and so incessantly that he sometimes had to excuse himself because he just physically could not be everything to the people that he wanted to be. I love this from Tim Chester. I was exposed to this quote just this week. Jesus didn't run projects. He didn't create programs, and he didn't put on events. He ate meals. That was Jesus' M.O. Hey, Jesus, how are you going to spread the gospel? How are you going to change the world? How are you going to transform Israel? I'm going to eat. I'm going to sit down in people's homes, and I'm going to eat with them. We see Jesus eating, and Jesus says, look, when John the Baptist came, you're like, oh, that guy's mad in the head. He eats locusts and wild honey. Look at the way he dresses. Look at the way he acts. He's, he's got a demon. And then he says, but I come, and I'm just eating with people and spending time with them. And you're like, yeah, he's a glutton. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him. He spends time with sinners and tax collectors. Friends, this indictment was the greatest good news in all the universe, that God is available, that God is approachable, that God is accessible, and that God is the friend of people like you. That God is the friend of sinners. There is a holy earnestness, and this is the ones I was alluding to earlier. We've already seen Jesus, a pleading leper, a faith-filled centurion, a carried-by-friends paralytic, a despised tax collector, a desperate father, a desperate bleeding woman, two pleading blind men, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us, a mute man pressing, 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 taking the blessing by force, effectively saying to Jesus, we will not shut up until we receive a blessing. But how many of us are living with apathy and with listlessness and indifference right on the very fringes of the great good news of the kingdom of heaven? How many of us have grown so familiar with and so comfortable with the great truths of Scripture that we spend far more time watching the Olympics? Don't even, don't even try to have that conversation. The amount of time that many of us have spent watching the Olympics versus the amount of time that we have in Scripture is not even a need to have a conversation about it. Because you know as well as I know that the vast majority of us in this room, that's not, that's not even a comparison to be had. 
And I'm not suggesting that you don't watch the Olympics and enjoy the exploits of the Boomers and Phelps and, and all of these great you know, uh, 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 icons of imbalance. Um, my burden, my burden is that we wouldn't dwell with indifference and casualness and listlessness about the things that really matter while being just drawn to the stuff that Paul says, man, those wreaths, those medals, those, it's interesting, but it's not the stuff that matters the most. This is not an announcement to not watch the Olympics. It's an announcement to not be ambivalent about what really matters. Jesus then rebukes the major cities that he had been working at in his day all along the northern shore of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. They were the cities that were quite closely connected, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And what Jesus says is damning. Verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which he had done most of his mighty works because they would not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Kingscliff. For if the works, the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And, and you, Capernaum, who were exalted to the heaven, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judge, for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus expected that the people would respond to his mighty works. This is another instance of expectation. Jesus is clearly, legitimately frustrated here. He's astonished that there has been such an apathy, such a listlessness toward these amazing things that have happened in their very precincts. He wasn't the right kind of Messiah. There wasn't a certain attractiveness or savvy about him, and so he was disregarded by the religious leaders and therefore by many of the others. Some are pressing in, and some are ambivalent and listless. The in crowd is becoming the out crowd, the out crowd is becoming the in crowd, and the, flip, the script is being flipped. Jesus said, we played the flute and you didn't dance. And we sang a dirge and you didn't cry. Friends, the good news, the great good news is that God is working through whatever means he can to get your attention. He's trying. He's trying to get my attention. And there are lots of things that have my attention. But God demands, he asks, he pleads, he wants my attention. And he wants your attention. Back to Keener in his commentary, he says, in the very different ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist, the kingdom confronted that generation from two opposing prophetic models. One was austere and severe, and the other was celebratory and inviting and, and social. And he says, the generation as a whole rejected both opportunities. My invitation to you is to go ahead and dance. When you hear the flute, the good news of the righteousness of Christ and of the accessibility and availability of the kingdom and of the stuff that really matters, dance. Get involved. Get active. Don't just sit there idly in the marketplace waiting for the, what, whatever it is that has your, I don't know what has your attention. I know the things that clamor for my attention, but I want the thing that has my attention the most to be the thing that matters most. Doesn't that just stand to reason? All right. In Matthew 11, we see a tension between absolute earnestness and apathetic listlessness. Some are pressing in, pressing, pressing in, coming to Jesus, pressing into him so vigorously and so insistently that he has to distance themselves from him by getting into a boat or even escaping from the crowds. And then we see cities, there's this, 
another miracle, another healing. There's this tension in Matthew 11, not only of expectations, but also of, of this juxtaposition of people that were absolutely passionate and others that were just perfectly indifferent, perfectly indifferent. In Matthew 11, we see the desperate and needy pressing into Jesus' presence. Verse 25, we're just going to wrap the chapter up. We're this close. We're not going to not breast the tape. At that time, Jesus answered and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, that is to say, the in crowd, and you have revealed them to babes, that is to say, the out crowd. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to be my by Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the, and the one to whom the Son reveals him. And then probably the three best-known verses in all of Matthew chapter 11, maybe all of Matthew, full stop. We're going to pick this up in greater detail next week. These verses are hugely pregnant with meaning, but we're going to read them today. We'll pick them up next week. Come to me, Jesus. Here's the invitation of the foreigner. Here's the invitation of the outcast. Here's the invitation to the bleeding woman. Here's the invitation to the leper. Here's the invitation to you. Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. Learn from me. Don't just learn from the Olympics. Don't just learn from BBC. Don't just learn from all of the blogs that you frequent or the television shows that you watch. Don't just learn from that stuff. The world has a lot to teach you, but Jesus has something to teach you. Jesus has something to teach you. He has something to teach me. And it's in this word. And it's in ministry. And it's in prayer. Jesus has something to teach us. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We're going to pick that up next week. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I'm going to invite Paul and Blair to come up. We're going to make an appeal. We're going to make an appeal. In Matthew chapter 11, we see the desperate and needy pressing into Jesus' presence. We see them pressing into the very presence of Jesus. We also see the self-righteous, contented, and just the lazy just the plain lazy, ambivalent to his presence and his works. Last slide, and they're going to sing us a beautiful song, Just As I Am. I wonder if there are any sinners here this morning. Are there any sinners here this morning? Is there anyone here this morning who desperately needs Jesus and his rest? I'm going to invite you to come forward and pray. If you, if you feel, if you say, you know what, I need to press into the presence of Jesus. I want to invite you to come forward. Judith, I love when you come. You're always the first one. I love that about you. All right, we have one sinner. Are there any other sinners in here that need to press into the presence of Jesus? Come on up. Let's press into the presence of Jesus. Not just dwell on the fringes of some cultural Christianity. Let's press into the presence of our Lord. I hope we see some teenagers come forward. Man, that would thrill my soul to see some teenagers come forward. 
read you these words again. I want you to hear these words as words to your own soul. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's somebody else that just wants to press into the presence of Jesus. Just come forward and just announce to the world, to the onlooking world, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I want to press into the kingdom today. I want to invite you to come forward as they sing our final verse here. heaven we have today whether we've come forward physically or in our heart of hearts responded to you father forgive us where we have been tempted to read the text and divorce ourselves from the reality of what was happening father help us to see ourselves as in the text to place ourselves in those situations and to ask ourselves the question based on the way that I live today, where would I have been then? Would I have been among those pressing into the presence of Jesus? Would I have been among those who, despite social stigma and others looking funnily at me or thinking that I was a certain way, overly religious, would I have insisted on pressing into the presence of Jesus? Would I have abandoned social protocol and called out as the blind did, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Would I have clamored through the crowd and and touched the hem of Jesus' garment? Would I have approached Jesus and said, No, 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 I'm a man of authority just like you. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. Would I have been the tax collector, the despised and hated tax collector who would have left everything and just followed Jesus? Father, help us not to imagine that we would be heroes in the text if we're living in a way that is radically inconsistent with that today, Father, only you know our lives fully. Only you know our energies. Only you know our thoughts. Only you really know the fullness of how we spend our money and our time and our intellectual energies and our affections. Father, you know us and love us yet. Father, help us today to embrace the reality of the text and the reality of our lives and to not superimpose ourselves as superheroes if we lived back then but Father to come today as we are to come as sinners to receive the invitation come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest Father some of us need a rest from laziness 
Some of us need a rest from self-righteousness. Some of us need a rest from cultural Laodiceanism. Some of us need a rest from worldliness. Father, our souls are troubled, many of us. And we just want to come to you and be open. We want to be honest. We want to be real. We want to be raw. This is who we are. You know us in all of our in-glory. You know who we are. We present ourselves to you today, not as we aren't, but as we are. And we claim the promise that you will receive us and that we will receive rest for our souls. Father, be with this church, be with this community, be with our families, and be with our souls. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Let everyone say, amen. Turn to the brother or sister next to you. Give them a word of encouragement. Tell them that the kingdom of heaven is for people just like them. Amen and happy Sabbath. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.